0: Health in much of the developing world is improving rapidly, despite the economic recession that's taking place in rich countries. But the improvements are uneven, with some countries still in great need. This comes out of the 2009 International Conference on Global Health, held recently in Washington, D.C. In a special presentation at the conference, Hans Rosling from Sweden warned about labelling some countries as developing and others as developed. He was in no doubt about which parts of the world need the biggest efforts to improve health
1: the poorest and it's not a geographical area and we will also have to look into pockets and parts of countries. We cannot look just at one country. Uganda is doing fine centrally West Nile up in the northwest has really big challenges after the period of war. So we need to look at the poorest one to two billion human beings. Those need to be part of the modern world. Otherwise we will get a, a new gap emerging and we will have collapsed areas that will generate pirates and terrorists and a lot of other things. So it's far beyond uh, humanitarian views that we get everyone on the ship towards modernity.
0: Hans Rosling, Professor of International Health at the Karolinska Institute and Director of the Gapminder Foundation, set up to mind the gap, as they say on the London Underground, between the rich and the poor. And the first academic institution to receive the Million Dollar Gates Award, presented in Washington, has, I discovered, for a long time worked in these poorest countries. The outgoing president of the Global Health Council, Neil Stiller, explained to me why he and his fellow committee members decided to bestow the Gates Award on the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine
2: when we looked at the history of the london school uh going back to its early founding and the work that has been done in malaria which is historic uh to its current work in partnership with a whole range of uh uh countries around the world particularly sub-saharan african countries helping them to develop their own uh research and service capacities um the the the, the body of uh Uh, of evidence strongly supported the London School as uh, the outstanding choice for this year. Now I know
0: that the London School is hoping to use some of the money from the Gates Award to help towards a distance learning program. What do you think about that and are there other aspects of the work of the London School that you'd like to see improved?
2: Well, it's, uh, I, we thought that this was a very interesting decision by the London School. The million-dollar prize given uh, for this uh, award uh, is really untied. The, uh, the beneficiary, the recipient, can do whatever they want with it. If they want to put it in the bank, they can do that. If they want to spend it on a lovely office for their chief executive, they may. That's never happened, fortunately. Uh, but um, uh, we were certainly very pleased to hear that uh, the London School had decided to use uh, uh, the, the proceeds of this prize to, to extend its reach, uh, to be able to do more to help advance education in places where uh, people may not be able to come to London on, uh, on an academic calendar basis and where in fact uh, uh, the, the benefits of, uh, of what's being generated at the London School can be more widely shared. Neil
0: Stiller of the Global Health Council, organisers of the International Conference on Global Health and responsible for choosing the winner of the Gates Award. So just how widely have the London School's skills and knowledge been shared up until now? I called in at a London School alumni gathering, being held in a busy coffee bar not far from the conference venue. I asked some of the former students how their training had affected their work as public health experts around the world. First, James Hospitalis, coordinator for chronic disease prevention and control at the Pan American Health Organization.
2: I think the London School has contributed immensely to public health and to development in in this world. I love the school. I think it's a wonderful institution. I encourage uh, colleagues and juniors now to, to think of going there. I think it's kind of the best-kept secret in public health. When I was looking at universities, the more people I spoke with, they said, look at the London School, and yet I hadn't seen it on any websites or seen it in any forums. And the more I researched into it, I realized it was the best-kept secret, that it is the place where all the people I admired went to.
1: I think it was a life-changing experience, because before that, I was headed straight to medical school. In fact, I deferred med school to go to the London School. Um, and. Um, Uh, the experiences that I had, the conversations that I had, both with my professors and with my colleagues, led me to think about um, pulling away from the clinical side and thinking more about the, the systems and the management side. So in fact, when I went back to the States, I withdrew from the med school program, finished out an MBA and started my career in consulting and in medical technology.
0: That was Kazer Hussein, and before him Sheree Carter, London School alumni who, like James Hospitalis, work in America and around the world. Another alumni, Ariella Bock, told me why she thought her training with the London School gave her confidence that she can help influence not just immediate health practices but also long-term policies in the countries where she works.
1: Well, I think that from the London School you get concrete research results, skills that are sort of are, are sound um, and that can definitely affect the policy, whether it's in the UK or in Africa where I do a lot of my work, or in Asia, you know, using the skills that, you, that are developed at the London School um, and applying them in, in, in implementing situations is, you know, you, that's where policy comes from and that's where change comes from.
0: Well, I couldn't wait to get down to the awards banquet of the Global Health Conference, and I arrived just in time to hear the writer, David Duncan, announcing the awards, ending with the one that everybody I met was talking about.
2: Our final award of the evening is the prestigious Gates Award for Global Health. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was founded on the belief that all lives, no matter where they are lived, have equal value. Each year this award honors an organization which has developed processes for improving health, especially in resource-poor settings. It's the largest award of its kind, and this year the winner was selected from over 120 nominations. To present the Gates Award for Global Health this evening, we have with us Dr. Tachi Yamada. President of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation Global Health Program. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Tachi Yamada to present the 2009 Gates Award for Global Health.
0: I really think all of us recognize that the name London School or more formally, the name London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine is synonymous with global health, public health in a global stage for more than 100 years. For inspiring leadership, for the commitment, steadfast commitment to the principles of global health and health equity, I am truly honored to present the 2009 Gates Award for Global Health to the London School and its able leader, Professor Sir
1: Andy Haynes. Well, many thanks uh, Tachi for those very kind and generous uh, remarks. On behalf of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, I'd like to express my sincere thanks to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the committee that selected the school for the award, and of course for the Global Health Council for their very professional organisation of this premier event in global health.
0: Andy Haynes at the awards banquet of the International Conference on Global Health in Washington. And when I met up with him, I asked him how he felt about winning the million-dollar prize. Well, obviously,
1: I'm elated on behalf of the school. I think it really represents a tremendous commitment, uh, the the, the fruits of a tremendous commitment by all my colleagues at the school over so many years. Uh, I admire them greatly. I think they're... A really outstanding group of people, and I think they're now being recognised very much on the international stage with a globally preeminent award, of which there is really no uh, other comparative award in the world. I think it demonstrates that it's uh, you know we are a global institution, um, certainly at the top there as rated by our peers, and that's obviously both humbling but also very gratifying.
0: One of the really key things that you yourself have highlighted is the importance of strengthening institutions. First of all, could you explain to me exactly what that means?
1: What that means is um, um, empowering and enabling institutions in low-income countries to achieve their potential and to be able to compete on the international stage for research funds, but also to train their own leaders and their own staff uh, for the future. Give me an example. One example would be uh, the long-standing collaborations that we have in Tanzania, for example. So we've set up the Mwanza Intervention Trials Unit, which is based in Mwanza in Tanzania in conjunction with the National Institute of Medical Research in Tanzania. And this aims to be a leading institution in East Africa, indeed Africa in general, for the training of individuals in uh, clinical trials, which of course is a a very great need in sub-Saharan Africa as as it is around the world.
0: So institutions performing public health duties in countries which may not be getting adequate funds, but may not know how to get strengthened or how to get more funds, how will you be able to help them?
1: Well I think there's a range of ways in which we can help. I mean some institutions of course are research institutions and therefore they need to be able to compete on the international stage. Others are very much uh, more focused on teaching and training and I think we can hope in a whole uh, help in a whole range of different ways. One is of course by licensing our teaching materials and we're quite prepared to license our materials free of charge to any institution in a low income country. Um, Often though people want more than that because you can give them a a large range of materials but they don't necessarily have the capacity to edit and adapt those materials uh, for local use. So uh, what we try to do is to make ourselves uh, available to assist and advise institutions as to how they they can do that. We can also help by, in selected cases, um, running short courses uh, for people in country so they don't have to travel to the UK. I think um, our distance learning and short course programme has also opened up international training for many people who couldn't uh, afford to leave either in terms of time or financially to leave their home country for a year or more to get training in London so that has opened the doors for many people
0: um, to get access to uh, postgraduate education. So what sort of message would you like to leave for institutions with great enthusiasm and great abilities all over the world who nevertheless would like a bit of guidance and how to hit the
1: target. Well obviously we are very keen to help within the limits of our resources. We have a number of long-term partnerships and obviously our initial priority has to be to sustain and develop those long-term partnerships. What we would like to do is to work with those partners in Africa and Asia so that in a few years time they themselves are regional centers of excellence and they themselves can support other national and regional partner institutions. In that way, we hope to achieve a multiplier effect.
0: Professor Sir Andy Haynes of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine ending this report from the Global Health Conference in Washington, D.C. For Audio News, I'm Peter Goodwin.